Hello, Food Chain. This is Sharon Chiton, and I'm a food tech junkie and innovation nerd who loves a good story. This podcast combines all of my favorite vices into a weekly deep dive about the problems our food system faces and the visionary people working on solutions. Today, we chat with Danielle Nirenberg, a force to be reckoned with, co-founder of Food Tank, a nonprofit organization focused on building a global community for safe, healthy, and nourished eaters. Food Tank is a global convener and research organization impacting the food system. And so without any further ado, let's listen in. Hi, Danielle. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Sharon? I am very well. Um, Where are you? What are you up to? I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I'm going to an event tonight at the Smithsonian Arts and Industries Building, um, where I'm moderating the founder of X at, at, you know, part of Alphabet, part of Google. So that's exciting around ag tech. So uh, wish me luck. (laughs) Good luck. You won't need it because you're always amazing. You're Um, sweet. (laughs) And I'm very excited to have you on today as our guest. Um, I'm just going to dive into the questions because I have a lot um, of material to cover, but I think it would be very difficult to find 10 people, especially those of us who work in the food industry who don't know who you are. (laughs) We want to be inclusive of everyone who might be listening to us and that is not familiar with your work. So Can you explain a little bit about what Food Tank is and how it came to be and what kind of work you are carrying forward? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, Food Tank is is a research and advocacy organization. We have kind of this very simple mission, and it's to highlight stories of hope and success in food and agriculture issues all over the world and make sure that they get to a wider audience. And we do this through a couple of ways. We have a newsletter that reaches about 300,000 people across the globe. That's farmers and you know chefs and policymakers and regular eaters like you and me. Um, we have a, a news website where we're publishing daily, sometimes twice a day, 365 days a year. Uh, with with different stories about what's happening, you know, with women in agriculture, youth or, or BIPOC communities or ag tech or food loss and food waste and really trying to, to cover as much around food as we can. Um, we also have, you know, uh, convened a lot of events pre-pandemic. We were doing summits in places like New York and Washington, D.C. Um, and then during the pandemic, we went online and I had this kind of, you know, um, Looking back on it now, it was kind of this wonderful opportunity to interview so many people, about 300 folks from all over the world, everyone from, you know, the the chief economist at the UN Food and Agriculture Organization to small farmers in Kenya to farmers market managers in Minnesota, really hearing from them what was happening in real time, how they were having to pivot and find different ways to deal with the pandemic. So that was was a really, you know, looking back on it now, a, a remarkable experience um, to be able to, to hear from so many people. Um, you know, now we're getting back into both on, online and, and also um, in-person events. I, I just got back from COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference, and where we were able to partner with a lot of 
of different um, collaborators, including the Rockefeller Foundation and WWF on really putting food on the table at, at the climate negotiations. Um, and, you know, next over the next year, we'll be doing summits everywhere from North Dakota to Chicago and the United States and and hoping to do some international summits as well. So, um, you know, we're a small but mighty organization who probably punches a little bit above our weight, but we, we try to bring uh, as many people together as possible and have what we like to call uncomfortable conversations. Um, you, you know better than anyone, Sharon, mm -hmm. that the, these issues are not black and white. They're very gray. And the more we can get, you know, different different communities to to talk about food and agriculture systems, the better. So sorry, I talked a lot. I'll stop there. No, no, I, I indeed. Um, and I do feel like Food Tank is an extension of who you are as a person and your passion for food. So why food? What does that mean to you? Gosh, it's such a good question. Um, you know, I, I grew up as an environmentalist and, and you know, um, I grew up in this very small farming community. My parents were not farmers. And I kind of thought at that time when I was growing up, I couldn't wait to get out of there. It was a town of about 300 people in the in the Midwest. And I kind of thought farmers were stupid. Um, you know, I thought they were destroying the environment. You know, I, I was reading about all these things that, you know, farmers were doing that I thought were bad. And, you know, I I wanted to uh, be in a Peace Corps volunteer right after college. And I, I worked directly with farmers and extension agents. And I had this very kind of slow epiphany that I was the dumb one, that farmers were really doing all the things that I cared about. They were you know, working to steward natural resources. They were providing nutrition. They were doing, you know, the best they could often with very little resources and help. And, and so it just made me want to be able to tell the stories of farmers and, and our food systems and, and, and be able to communicate that in, in different ways and, and sort of make up for what, what I, you know, how I thought about with them when I was a kid, you know, to, to sort of pay, pay some penance and, and really be able to, you know, share their stories as much as I could. Well, that's, uh, a good revelation and definitely got you to a great start. And speaking of better food systems, I feel when we mention sustainable food, most of us immediately make a mental association with the environmental problems caused by the food industry. But of course, sustainability is a much broader concept. Um, first, what do you think about the term sustainable? And second, do you think the efforts that are being made to fix uh, the food system, both by the public and private sector, are focusing on all pillars of sustainability equally, or are some being overlooked? Yeah, really good questions, Sharon. I mean, I think sustainability has been diluted because we overuse it. And so for me, when I try to think about what a sustainable food system is, it has to be economically, environmentally, and socially sustainable. So it yeah. has to make money for farmers, it has to protect the environment, and it has to provide accessibility, affordability, equality, and equity. And, you know, if we think about it in that way, it gives people some, you know, things to sort of latch on to. And, you know, I, I, governments and, and, and the private sector and individuals and organizations, I think so many of them want to do the right thing when it comes to our food and agriculture systems, but they don't know how. Um, I have been sort of 
impressed in some ways by the private sector, especially over the last decade. I mean, if you'd asked me 15 or 18 years ago, you know, if I if I would be even talking to food companies, I would have laughed at you. I would have said that's ridiculous. They're you know they're the the evil corporations. And uh, you know, I, I've come to this sort of you know um, not revelation, but just sort of understanding that if we don't talk to the private sector and encourage them to do the right thing, and then show them what that looks like, um, you know, as as nonprofits and. Uh, then, then they're they're not going to change. They have to be pushed, and they have to have examples. And I think there's a a real opportunity now with small and medium sized businesses and enterprises who are mission driven, who are starting with this idea of sustainability and and what that means uh, from the very beginning. You know that there's a real opportunity for big companies to learn from a lot of these smaller companies. What concerns me is the urgency. We we don't have you know. We can't make commitments that are going to happen by 2050. The world yeah. will be burning by then. We need action now from private sector uh, entities as well as governments and individuals. This this uh, this is all, you know, coming to a head, and and we have a chance. We have a moment to make change, and we we need to get there. Absolutely, uh, you know, we really do not have any more time. Um, and speaking of, I mean. Um, you know, you, you just mentioned um, that you were at COP26. Um, it can be hard to figure out whether there was enough awareness and of the consequences of the changing climate on food systems and the people that work in it. What was your experience? Yeah, I mean, I think for, I, I've attended a few COPs in the past, um, not in such a big way where I was, you know, this time I was in the blue zone, where you know things are actually happening, decisions are being made, and and while I might be disappointed with the outcomes of the conference overall in terms of the the commitments made, you know I don't think they're strong enough. But I do think that food had a bigger presence than I've ever seen before. Food and agriculture systems were mentioned, you know, by by lots of of, of dignitaries and 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 you know uh, speakers but we also had all of these great events that really focused on healthy and sustainable diets and and, and you know how to change the uh, the meat industry how to uh, encourage better nutrition by the private sector how young people need to be part of these conversations so i think we made you know um, a little dent and 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 i know there's a call for a food day at the next cop which will be held in egypt cop 27 in november of next year and i'm really excited about the opportunities there but again it gets back to the urgency we can't just wait for the next cop to make these decisions yeah we really need to be doing stuff now absolutely um and another thing though i think it's important to discuss i mean in a recent article published on your website, um, which linked to a conversation held during, um, again, COP26, you mentioned the hidden costs of food. Can you explain to our audience, for those who don't know, what true cost accounting is and why is it important for us to understand it? Yeah, it's really true cost accounting is really this system of, of looking at the economics of food differently. Okay. Right now, a lot of, you know, ultra processed uh, foods are very cheap because they're they're subsidized. Uh, but we, and we don't pay the full health costs or pollution costs or social costs of 
of what those foods are, are doing to our personal health and the health of the planet. But if we took into account all of those, you know, sort of ex what are now externalized costs and internalized them, then healthy foods, the foods that, you know, seem so expensive right now would have a much lower cost because we wouldn't be paying for healthcare, you know, from eating bad foods. We wouldn't be paying for the, the pollution that corporations uh, create when they're, you know, factory farming or producing palm oil, et cetera. So, you know, it's really this, this just sort of flipping how we are our traditional thinking around the price of food on its head and, and, and you know, looking at it at a completely different way. And I think it's a tool that's gaining some momentum. Yeah. The last time I was at the UN Food and Agriculture Organization for a conference, it was brought up many, many times. And, you know, this is a concept that's been, you know, on the verge of, of becoming bigger and bigger. So I, I think there's a real opportunity for especially the private sector to take the lead on this and, and, and internalize their own costs so that we don't have to pay for them. Well, absolutely. And we see it, I think, done in other industries um, when they want to turn a profit. I'm thinking about uh, the many algorithms of like looking at insurance. So mm -hmm. why can't we do it, you know, uh, with things that you know, in a way matter to the people and to the planet. At least that's my uh, my sense. Um, Absolutely. Going back um, to climate a second, who do you think is more at risk in this climate emergency? I mean, I think the the industry and the people most at risk are farming, farmers and, and agriculture. I mean, small farmers who make up about 60 to 70 percent of all of all, you know, farmers worldwide are, are at huge risk. You know, they they their weather patterns are changing. They're not able to plant, you know, at the same time they did like 10 years ago. They're really at risk. And at the same time, they're the the you know, farmers and, and, and agriculture are, have the most opportunity to really solve the climate crisis. If yeah. we can get food, right. We can get climate, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, uh, there has been a lot of talk, um, around food tech, um, and ag tech obviously, and the role it could play in curbing, uh, the agriculture's climate footprint, but criticism as well. Some say we're at risk of investing in technologies that just allow harmful industries and systems to survive or make promises that they can't keep. Uh, and one example of that was brought up um, is the meat industry. What is your mm -hmm. take on this and how can we avoid falling into this trap in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to remember that technology is not a silver bullet and that, you know, we have to think of ways to combine technologies that sort of, you know, technologies that farmers have, you know, developed for generations and centuries and, and maybe you figure out ways to combine them with AI and, you know, machine learning and all of these other interesting uh, technologies that are coming about. I don't think it's one or the other. I think we can use technology as a tool, but what bothers me is often technologies are created without farmers in mind. Farmers are not part of the process. You have you know, entrepreneurs who think that they know how to solve the food crisis. 
and they don't talk to farmers. There needs to be more participatory development of technologies. And when we're talking about meat, I'm not sure what you're referring to, but I think there is opportunity in you know, cellular agriculture mm -hmm. and cultivated meat and those kinds of things. But again, farmers need to be part of that process. And you know, there needs to be a just transition. We can't just go from you know, um, factory farms to no one eating meat. There has yeah. to be a transition where you know, farmers and, and livestock producers are are really you know they, they get a fair shake which they, they have it you know a lot of a lot of the farmers who are involved in you know concentrated uh animal feeding operations they don't want to be that's you know that's not what they signed up for originally they're just now locked into kind of a vicious cycle because they have loans and infrastructure that they need to pay for and many would probably like to turn to different you know farming practices that are aren't as intensive and and don't destroy you know, uh, um, natural resources and, and, and create pollution and that kind of thing. So I, I think we need to, to really include farmers in all of these conversations. Yeah. So continuing like on this point, um, I feel sometimes that we don't put enough attention to the nuances, but mm -hmm. just go full force ahead with whatever is the latest trend. And there can be indeed unexpected consequences for this sort of linear thinking mentality that we as you know that humans you know at least in the last you know 60 uh years have you know have done it's like for example you know we're talking about you know meat but um not paying enough attention on how we grow like plant-based foods uh will not make either the product um or this, you know, restore the soil or the climate any less damaged. So what is your opinion? What are we overlooking and how can we look at it more systemically? I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. We haven't thought about soil health for the last 60 or 70 years. We've just been depleting soils. And so, you know, re regenerative systems that involve, uh, you know, livestock and that involve, you know, um, instead of monocultures, looking at a diverse, you know, growing a diverse set of crops, you know, going back to indigenous crops that can, you know, have deep root structures and help can help retain water, really thinking about what we're growing and what we're eating very differently. And, and so I think, you know, the soil health has to be at the the forefront of, of how we think about the future of food, not just because, um, you know, we've, we've depleted soil so much, but the soil Soil health is a, is a key tool in, in solving the climate crisis because healthy soils can sequester carbon in a way that, you know, depleted soils just can't. So we just have to think about this more holistically. Yes. And uh, I think more and more, we don't just talk about regenerative agriculture, but about regenerative business models as a whole. Sure. Maybe based on more collaboration more than competition which i know um like that you agree in a way with me so and i'm asking do you agree and if so how can we do better 
Yeah, I think it's such a great point that we need this spirit of cooperation between companies and instead of having them compete against one another, uh, you know, on sustainability, they should be working together to solve these problems. And, you know, one thing that Food Tank has done over the last year that my co-founder Bernie Pollock really spearheaded is we built a, a, a chief sustainability officer group of, of small, medium and large companies so that we could have, you know, a really free forum for folks to talk talk about these issues who are in business and, and want to do better. Um, they're not all, you know, mission-driven companies from the beginning. Some of them are very large, but their their chief sustainability officers are have a higher profile, I think, now than ever before, because you can't just sort of um, you can't fake this anymore. Companies can't fake sustainability anymore because you have this new generation of eaters, of consumers who want to know the story of their food and they want to know, you know, who grew it, how workers were treated, you know, did farmers get a fair price? They want to know about traceability and transparency. So I think, you know, building that cooperation between companies is key to solving this. We, we need a new spirit, as you said, of, of how we do business. It, it can't be business as usual anymore. We all know that. But what does the new business model really look like? Yeah, and I think in a way the, um, you know, one great asset that we have is, um, you know, the, the younger generations, which seem to, um, to get this um, a lot more. What has been your experience uh, with the younger generations? What are your aspirations for, you know, the, the newcomers and the, all the, you know, great kids that are, you know, getting out of school with bright ideas and definitely, I think, a, a very different ethic. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the best parts of my job is being able to talk to students and young people and hear from them because I learned so much from them. And I think this is, you know, something that that you know, we're, we're learning from young people now. We're like, I think there's more of a respect for, for young voices. And it's not just the Greta's who I love, but it's all of these mm -hmm. great people who are working there, you know, for, there's an organization that had a big presence at COP26 called Eat for Change. You have Zero Hour, you have the, the Sunrise Movement. I'm just continually inspired by how all of these young people are like, not taking this anymore you know they're like yeah. they're fed up and they want change and they want it now yeah if you think about it i mean the last generation that actually put up a fight um was in the 60s uh i mean and then at least our generation didn't really you know take in the streets but now we see a lot more of that and it's actually i think a an exciting time and, and a time of change. And it's palpable on many different fronts, not just food, but that's just me. No, I think it's, it's you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's so exciting. And I, I think all of us need more young people as mentors. Again, we need to learn from them. They're, they have strategies in mind that, you know, I think, you know, previous generations didn't even think about. So I, it's a really cool time to, to, to watch this all unfold about how young people are, are again, not putting up with the, this old BS that, you know, we've, <laughs> we've been giving them. Indeed. And in terms of other actor of, the actors involved other than the, obviously the, the newer generations, what kind of synergies have you observed uh, produce the best results over the years? And what do we need more of? 
I'm really impressed by how towns and villages and municipalities in the absence of sort of federal action on climate or agriculture are really taking the lead. I think mayors have a really good sense about like how to change food systems and, you know, village leaders and in, in places like sub-Saharan Africa. I think we need, you know, more, more, um, uh, farmers organizing again and 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 really making their voices heard you know we have such great groups like la via campesina and others who you know are made up of millions of farmers and 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 come out with a united voice but you know normal folks the, the folks who aren't as sort of involved in the food system as people like you and i are aren't hearing from them so i think it's you know it's hearing from those communities and and how they're making change and those individuals, whether they're governments or farmers organizations or others, really listening to them and getting their perspective. Yeah, indeed. Um, at the beginning of the the podcast, and I think this goes back to you know also um, the the public aspect of it. Um, we we briefly mentioned COVID, um, but so. What do you think uh, was the impact on COVID nineteen on our food system, uh, on our food system, and it's more as most importantly, I think how it's uh, how does it have impact the uh, food access in the U.S. Now the prices are rising, and even more people are at risk of being food insecure. I mean, what type of approaches should we promote? um in your opinion to tackle this issue yeah i mean it's such a good one and i think you know especially in the u.s after the last mm -hmm. four years five years we had such a bad um we had bad food policy we had bad federal policy and, yeah. you know um and 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 those folks who were most in, in need were ignored so i i think we need to strengthen you know, and this is a, a worldwide problem, but, you know, safety nets really need to be strengthened for, for food access and affordability um, in, in the United States and elsewhere, because you, we can't just leave people uh, who have, you know, been unemployed because of the pandemic out on their own. You can't tell people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps when they never had boots in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think, you know, whether it's SNAP, our, our food stamp program here in the United States or other programs, they really need to be strengthened. Um, we need new methods of, of creating better access and affordability. We need more food recovery to, you know, solve multiple problems, not just hunger, but also, you know, the, the environmental impacts of, of food loss and food waste. So a lot really needs to happen. And it need, again, this is where we get to urgency. We have a lot of people in crisis. We, we not only have a food crisis and a health crisis, but we have a mental health crisis as well um, because people are really suffering. People who never had to use food banks before in the United States had to use them and st are still using them uh, because of the pandemic. And, and, you know, we can't look just to, to, uh, um, charities and philanthropy to solve this problem. Government needs to take a bigger role as well. Absolutely. I mean, this is something for uh, someone that, you know, like me is in Europe and, but has lived in the U.S. Um, I am sometimes amazed. And, you know, when I tell people, um, they're shocked that the U.S., which obviously, you know, is looked upon as, you know, the leader of the free world, um has this kind of issue around food you know food deserts it's not something that 
we know here in, in Europe. Um, and I think that, at least to me, is, is something that really breaks my heart. Um, Absolutely. I, um, but let's talk about, you know, um, Food Tank a little bit. So, and you, uh, what projects are you excited about right now or even that you're seeing, uh, not just your own? I mean, I think one of the big things that we're looking forward to is getting back into, uh, you know, uh, convening in person um, mm -hmm. as, as the, hopefully we're getting to the other side of this pandemic. So as I mentioned, we have a lot of, of programming coming up and, and we kick off in Chicago in, in January and then we'll be, you know, moving across the country. We have some great um, events planned in places like Santa Barbara with Julia Child Foundation and others. Um, and, you know, I, I want to be able to put all of those stories that I mentioned before about what we learned during the pandemic mm -hmm. about how resilient food and agriculture systems are into some sort of compendium or, or book or, you know, small report, because I think listening to, to how people, you know, experts of different kinds from farmers, you know, to, to policymakers, how they dealt with, with issues during the pandemic, this, you know, that's going to be useful for future global shocks. This is probably not the last pandemic we're going to face. And certainly the climate crisis is going to bring about a lot of different kinds of global shocks. So learning about, you know, regional and local food systems and, and strengthening local supply chains, I think, you know, those are projects that I'm really interested in. But, you know, again, what I'm most looking forward is just getting back out there and hearing <laughs> from people and, and, you know, really understanding the issues in different communities. Well, I'm going to give you a little save the date for June, send it over. Um, we're looking to do something fun and hopefully you can come. Hey. Yes. You know me. I like convening. <laughs> I know you do. And you do it well, better than anyone else. <laughs> All right. So um, thank you so much. Before I leave you, um, just uh, a shout out. Um, how do people get in touch with you? And they, absolutely. They can go to foodtank.com or email me personally at danielle at foodtank.com. And I, I love hearing from people both, you know, their suggestions, their critiques, you know, uh, share, I, I hope folks will share their stories with me about what they're doing in their own communities. Lovely. And I thank you so very much and have a great event later on. Thank you so much, Sharon. So great to talk to you. I miss you. I miss you. Want to deep dive into food innovation? Subscribe to the Food Tech Junkie series. Tune in and listen to the industry's champion whose mission is to reinvent our future by collaborating and disrupting the status quo as a way to rebalance our planet and our daily lives. For more great content, visit our website at www.ediblepanetventures.com and follow us on social media on the Edible Planet Ventures channels.